Quite some time ago, I was on the East Coast at a conference and heard that there was a church close by where George Whitfield, the famous evangelist, was buried under the pulpit. Sounds kind of weird, huh? I like weird sometimes. And so, of course, I wanted to go and some of the other guys wanted to go. So we went to the church and the pastor was kind enough to let us in. And he was a little puzzled why why we would care about such a thing. But Whitfield's a, an important person in church history as an evangelist. And so we went and he let us get in the pulpit and it was a big, huge pulpit. He said they don't use it anymore. But one of the people in my group said to the pastor, they said, do you ever get in that pulpit and preach any of Whitfield's sermons? And the pastor said, heavens, no, the people would never tolerate that. Interesting commentary. Interesting to observe that how we can go from we long to hear Christ preached. We want to honor this preacher of Christ and the gospel, even in a strange way of by burying him under the pulpit. And then we end up saying, heavens no, we don't want to hear Christ preached. I bring it up today because I think when it comes to becoming a dead church, it probably doesn't happen overnight. We don't go from, we want to hear Christ preach to heavens no. It probably happens subtly over time, not explicitly, not in a day, not in a forthright statement of the pastor saying, I don't believe it anymore and I'm going to convince you not to. And you all say, we don't either. It's probably more subtle than that. It probably is still with Bibles open probably still paying attention to the words, only interpreting them differently, maybe week after week after week, ever so subtly, till before you know it, we don't read the Bible like Christians. We don't explain the Bible like Christians. And before you know it, it doesn't really seem that we are Christians. Well, that's the last thing in the world I want. I hope we can be a true Christian church another week, another month, another year, Maybe a decade, maybe longer, I don't know. Uh, things don't tend to last that we get our fingerprints on. Uh, but Lord willing, we would uh, certainly be encouraged and Christ would be glorified and, and it would be good for us if we, as a Christian church, acted like Christians when it comes to interpreting our Bible. So we're doing this series called Interpretive Isms. And I know it sounds bad, but I want it to even sound worse So the technical word for interpretation is hermeneutics. And so we're doing a series called hermeneutical isms. Sounds awful. And I want it to sound awful because these are things I don't want us to catch. Uh, I want us to interpret the Bible like Christians, uh, not like those who've deviated away from Christianity, even though we all struggle. And so we're taking a break from our study of Matthew. We'll get back to it shortly. Today is going to be week three. If you're just joining us, I'll bring you up to speed. But we're looking at eight interpretive isms that aren't good for Christians. They aren't good for the church and they rob Christ of glory. So the first four I'll review ever so quickly right now. Uh, Number one, the first ism we are looking at is naturalism or we looked at is naturalism. That would be trying to read the Bible just like it's any other book, uh, not paying attention to the fact that God, the ultimate author behind the human authors, is guiding and controlling, not paying attention to Ephesians 1 that teaches that God has a an ultimate decree that he uh, set about before the foundation of the world, so we would look for it uh, throughout 
biblical history and the Bible teaches that it centers upon the redemption that's in Christ. And so we, when we read the Bible that way, we, we read it like supernaturalists, not like naturalists. Uh, some kind person just told me after the last service, they said, you said a few weeks ago that if you could convince people to read the Bible differently in light of Ephesians 1, that it would make your day. She said, you've convinced me to read the Bible differently in light of Ephesians 1. So I said, you're going to make the next sermon. She blushed. So uh, really, if we, if we know the theology behind Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world, there is a plan, there is a purpose. It centers on redemption in Christ. It should change the way we read the Bible. So the next ism is moralism. Moralism, not that we're against morals. We're actually going to talk about that this morning as a positive. But we're against moralism because it tends to put the priority of the Bible as a guidebook for living and a bunch of moral examples or immoral examples instead of saying, while we have those things in the Bible, the centerpiece of it all, the the focus of it all ends up being redemption in Christ. The next ism we looked at is legalism. Legalism, where we confuse God's law, what he requires, with his gospel, what he provides in Christ. When we confuse those or when we blend those, we're prone to legalism. And given the fact that the Bible has so many commands and so much emphasis on grace and mercy and gospel, it can be confusing if we're not paying attention. I think you all are trying to pay attention. As we look at different texts, we can say, is this text requiring something of me? It's law. Is it uh, graciously providing and meeting the requirement for me? Ultimately in Christ, it's gospel. Next ism that we looked at, I've, I've done all the review, did I? Oh, I skipped one. I skipped number three, literalism. Sorry, four was legalism. Three is literalism, and that would be not paying attention to figurative language, figures of speech, metaphor, symbolism, types, things like that. Okay, new ground, number five. The next ism is antinomianism. Antinomianism. If you've never heard that before, it's worth learning because Christians use it a fair amount. It's not a word that's in the Bible, but it describes a problem the Bible addresses. So antinomianism is anti-law. Namas is the word for law. Anti-namas, anti-law, antinomianism. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, And the classic text on this, you can probably almost read my mind to know where I'm going to ask you to turn, and that's Romans chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, you can find Romans 6. Romans 6 is countering antinomianism. Before we actually read some of the chapter, the whole chapter is about antinomianism. We won't read the whole thing. But I like to say, and I'll say to you, and I think the Apostle Paul would agree, uh, we want to be so clear about the gospel that people want to know if we're then going to promote antinomianism. We want to be so clear that it's grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. It's all of Him given to us freely. God justifies the ungodly by faith in Christ. Romans 4. We we want people actually to say, "Are, are you suggesting that we can just live immorally? Are you suggesting that we have no obligation to love God and love neighbor because we're, we're under grace? That's the question we want people to ask because if they're not ever asking it, we probably haven't made ourselves clear. We, we may have promoted legalism uh, instead of gospel preaching. But antinomianism is something that we're not for. We're against it in light of Romans 6, 1. 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? First John 3, 4 says sin is lawlessness. So are we to continue in lawlessness that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And that's a summary of the whole chapter. We might sample it a little bit, but that summarizes the whole thing. When you become a Christian, you trust in Christ, you're united to Christ by faith, and so you die with Him, and you're raised with Him, and we're going to see in the text, you're raised with Him unto newness of what? Newness of life. So, so now we, we live differently, and, and, and now we're, we're no longer under, under condemnation, Romans 1 to 5, because we're lawbreakers. We've been justified freely according to His grace. So now that I'm in a new position, now that I'm in a new relationship with God, I'm in a new relationship with His law, I want to do the right thing because I've now been set free to do the right thing. And so we're we not into antinomianism. And when Christians say, well, you know what? I, I, I'm under the blood. Um, I've been forgiven. I believe in free grace. And so therefore, don't tell me that I'm supposed to live a certain way. That would be antinomianism. It's going to be unhealthy, unwise, unchristian, non-Christian. It would come from a, a selective reading of Scripture. Remember, when we were in Matthew, we ended looking at Matthew 18 regarding accountability according to Christ. We call it church discipline. And remember what it says. Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and celebrate grace and say it's okay. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't promote antinomianism. He himself knows he's going to be the propitiation for our sins. He himself knows it's going to be given freely to believers. And yet he says, go to him. You're, you're trying to win them over. We're, we're not to live in sin if we've died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ. It's not healthy. It's not good. It's not honoring to God. It doesn't make sense. I do love Romans 6. I wish we were going to take the time to read the whole thing. Um, but maybe a good sampling. How about in verse 6 toward the end there? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 8. Now, if we, d- we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him. Or how about verse 10? For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. Implication is we're going to live differently now. We're united to Christ. Verse 11 11 says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Implication, verse 12, we'll end with this. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And then I love the verbiage at the end of 13. Now it's instruments for righteousness. Instruments for law-abiding, law-keeping. So, I like to be accused of being an antinomian when people hear me preaching the gospel. But I don't want my life to accuse me of being an antinomian. Okay? And ultimately, I don't want to be accused of being an antinomian. But in the short run, right? If they would have accused Paul of that, probably pretty good company. But I want to be able to explain the benefits of being united to Christ. And it's not only justification, it's also living unto newness of life by the power of the Spirit, by the power of being united to Christ. Right? Make sense? With me? We can move on to the next one. Sadly, antinomianism sometimes plagues the church. Sadly, right? I've I've said to people before, 
who, how do I want to say this? I'm thinking of someone who, who promoted the right gospel and then lived like an antinomian and influenced a lot of people. And so what I said to those people, uh, when they called me, I said, just know that what that person is doing is sinful and wrong and unacceptable and they should be accountable for it. But just know that the gospel you heard that person preach is true. It is true. Sometimes we, well, I'll, I won't say anymore. Let's move on to the next one. I, I feel such liberty because there's, there's no service after this. So I could just keep talking about all of these things and we'll have a wonderful time together. But I won't do that. We'll keep moving. Let's move on. Oh, Romans 12.1 would be another good one that would, would express gratitude. Um, I won't take the time to read it, but it puts things in the right perspective on not being an antinomian. We want to worship God by doing the right thing now that we can. The next ism will be a controversial one. Some of you come here for controversy. Just know that I'm praying for you specially. Um, and you can pray for me because I like a little controversy now and then as well. The next ism, number six on our list, is Zionism. Zionism. And if you're part of Theology for Breakfast, you may have already heard these things, but that's kind of the reason I'm doing this series because it's some of the run over uh, fruit, so I won't apologize, but we've talked about that recently in there. Zionism. Zionism would prioritize the ultimate, the tendency and interpretation, the ultimate is Israel. Whereas in Christianity, the ultimate, newsflash, is Christ. So if you have a Zionistic kind of tendency when it comes to interpreting the Bible, you're going to see Israel as the ultimate, Israel as the substance, if you will, to borrow from the Apostle Paul's verbiage, Israel as the substance and Christ as the shadow. And lots of Christians tend to think this way. I think I've been guilty of thinking this way. That would be Zionism. Zionism would say that there has to be a future for geopolitical religious Israel where they have a rebuilt temple and a reinstituted priesthood with reinstituted animal sacrifices that make atonement for sin. And that all of those things are biblical and God wants those things to happen. Whereas I'm going to suggest in the book, in the book of Hebrews, and I'll ask you to turn there whenever you'd like to. We'll be there for multiple passages. The ultimate, those, those, those things are good, but they're shadows. Those are types. So again, temple, priesthood, sacrifices, all of those things anticipate the ultimate. They're not the ultimate. And the book of Hebrews leads us to that kind of conclusion. So I think Zionism is an ism because it dislodges Christ from priority and makes Israel priority. And actually the Bible, according to Hebrews, puts it exactly the opposite. So as you're still maybe finding Hebrews to, to give a qualifier, I love Israel. Okay, I, I'm a big fan, been there a lot of times, studied there, want to go back, we'll keep going there. It's an amazing place. If we were going to talk politics, we're not going to. I would say I'm pro-Israel. I like Israel as an ally to the country that I call my home. Uh, I love Jewish people. I'm told I'm probably part, part Jewish. I don't hate myself. I love myself. Um, I pray for Jewish people to be converted and believe in Jesus as Messiah. Uh, I, just like I pray for Gentiles to believe in Jesus as Messiah. So, so don't take me wrong. I'm not anti-Semitic. 
um, pro-Jewish people believing in Jesus. But I'm not a Zionist because I'm a Christian. And they're distinct and different when it comes to interpreting the Bible. Substance belongs to Christ, not Israel. Hebrews 1.1 is a great place to start. The whole book would be a great place to go. Hebrews 1.1, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. Think Old Covenant. Think all the stuff entailed in the Old Covenant and before and after by the prophets. Then verse 2, but in these last days, think final, think climactic, think apex, doesn't get any better, doesn't get any grander. He has spoken to us by His Son. Think heir, think doesn't get any more important than that. By His Son whom He appointed the, I'm going to say with emphasis, heir of all things through whom He also created the world. Huge stress, huge emphasis. And then the whole book stresses this. The whole book stresses the fact that He is the substance. He is the ultimate. He is the heir of all things. So I'm suggesting to you to read the Bible as if He's not is not a good look. I said to the men in Theology for Breakfast, I can't unsee what I've seen in the book of Hebrews. Yes, I know I'm told I'm not supposed to read the Old Testament in the light of the New, but I, I can't help it. I've already done it. And I've concluded that concluded that Christ is the heir of all things and those other things are designed chronologically in the progress of revelation to emphasize the ultimate, the substance who is Christ. I'm suggesting to you that's the Christian way to interpret the Bible. But some of us struggle with doing that because we're thinking backward. We're going to then look at Hebrews chapter 10, but I've got some verses to, to cover before we get there. You can jot them down if you'd like to. Uh, one we keep mentioning, I keep mentioning, and I'm probably not going to stop. Colossians 2.17 says, these, and in the context of Colossians 2, these would be referring to the Mosaic Old Covenant things, the Israel-centric things. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Substance, Christ, shadow, mosaic things. It's not the opposite. Another good text would be one we looked at last week and the week before, I think, Ephesians 3.11. This was according to the eternal purpose. The eternal purpose. That He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The eternal purpose, again, Ephesians 1, and the eternal purpose, can't stress it enough, is realized, is fulfilled, is actualized, the ultimate end game in Christ Jesus. I'm going to interpret the Bible like a Christian. He, he, he's, he's, he's the one. But now I want you to read Hebrews 10, and I would like you to read it and be able to think of it in these terms. How does Hebrews 10, the verses we're about ready to read, how does it counter a Zionistic reading? A Zionistic reading that says we have to have a rebuilt temple. God wants a rebuilt temple, and He wants a renewed priesthood with animal sacrifices to make atonement for sin. 
That's a Zionistic reading of Ezekiel 45. To make atonement, to make atonement, to make atonement. How does what we're about ready to read counter that? Let's go ahead and read it. Verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How about verse 12? But when Christ had offered for all time, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for, here we go again, all time those who are being sanctified. All time, single sacrifice. All time, single offering. If Jesus is that, to say that there's legitimate temple sacrificed priesthood after doesn't work. The book of Hebrews has forever ruined me. I'm inviting you to the party if you've not been invited yet. I think to suggest that we have to have rebuilt temple reinstituted priesthood, animal sacrifices that make atonement for sin is antichrist. And I'm saying it that way to be provocative, not insulting. It's, it's Christ. This is why Christians, by and large, not all of them, why Christians, by and large, have read their Bible as, the whole Bible, as a Christian book. Christ is the ultimate. So we can do that hope it's making sense and connecting in your mind. Interestingly enough, in Ephesians chapter 2, also we learn that Christ, through His sacrifice, has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's Ephesians 2, verse 14. How is that relevant? Christ's sacrifice, once and for all, tears down the dividing line between Jew and Gentile, between Jew and non-Jew. It's gone. There was hostility between the two people groups. Now there's no hostility. He's made us one. That's present reality right now in the life of the church, Ephesians chapter 2. How does that relate to countering an ism called Zionism? Well, Zionism says unique, distinct, no Gentiles, only Jews have, according to Zionism, legitimate rebuilt temple with legitimate sacrificing priests with animal sacrifices, no Gentiles allowed. That's, that's Antichrist. Because Christ tore down the dividing wall and now according to Zionism, Christian or otherwise, we have to put the wall back up. We don't have Jew and Gentile together anymore like the all nations of Matthew 28. Only for the Jews. That's regressive revelation, not according to progressive revelation. We doing okay? I'm going to keep preaching. If I were you, I promise the next one's short too. We're almost there. Let's do pushback. And I'm doing maybe more here because Christian Zionism is alive and well. 
If Christian Zionism is true, you probably should start sending your money to the nation of Israel. Consider it part of your giving. I don't think you should, but if it's true, it actually would make sense. Send Netanyahu your money. Weird to think about, huh? If I'm in your chair, though, and I'm thinking about Christian Zionism, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, well, yeah, but it has to be because God promised not only blessing, salvation, seed in Christ, He also promised, and I've had this forever drilled in my mind, land. So we have to have Abraham a covenant fulfilled. They have to. They have to. That's what a Christian Zionist is going to say. So if you're saying that, I'm glad you're saying that. If you're not, you should be. Okay? I kid. You should probably write down Joshua 21. Because if we're into taking the Bible seriously, according to context, I think Joshua 21 works. When Joshua is going to lead the people into the promised land, we saw last week it's not the ultimate rest, it's not the ultimate promised land, Hebrews chapter 4, but when he's going to do so, fascinatingly enough, Joshua 21, I, I, don't, know who, I don't know where this verse has been all my life until someone pointed it out and it was a, an aha moment. Joshua 21 verse 45, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Huh, there's fulfillment. So promise to go in, Joshua leads them in. All came to pass. Yeah. God made a promise. Promise is fulfilled. I don't have to do Zionism to have it be fulfilled. I just do Old Testament history to have it fulfilled. And, 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 it's actually going to be fulfilled in a greater sense. According to the book of Hebrews, I hope you're still there. So in the short run, it's fulfilled. We might say in a typological kind of sense, theologians would say, if that doesn't jive with how you're thinking, that's fine. But it was fulfilled in the short run sense, uh, temporally, temporarily, physically, uh, Joshua 21. But there's, an, there's a greater rest, Hebrews 4. There's a greater new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that comes from above that will never, ever, 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 ever be destroyed. This is Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. What's super interesting about that in the context is these are persecuted Jewish Christians who feel like they have nothing and they're feeling the pressure to go back so they can go to the actual temple in actual Jerusalem. And the author to, to the Hebrews is saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. You have Christ, you have Christ, the once and for all propitiation, sacrifice. Don't do it because in actuality, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. By believing in Jesus, you've actually come to something better than the type in the shadow. It's absolutely amazing. Absolutely, absolutely amazing what he's saying to that person. You might feel like you have nothing, but you've come. You've come. And then he goes on to say all kinds of great things, and he calls it better. 
He calls it better in verse 24. One more text in Hebrews and then we'll move on. Hebrews 13, 14. For here in this temporal world, we have no lasting city, no lasting Jerusalem is the idea, but we seek the city that is to come. We seek the city that is to come. So when I put Hebrews 13 and 12 together, you have come, you have come in Christ. That's why we use labels like inaugurated. But you're waiting for it to come actually at the consummation. But you're in Christ, so you're in. You're in. One other text, you don't need to turn there if you don't need, you don't need to turn there, I'll just reference it. And that's Galatians chapter 3 verse 16, which is also relevant in all of this. Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And again, a Zionist is going to say, that's right, that's right. And until I see it happen uh, for for the Jewish people, then uh, I'm going to have to keep waiting. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Paul says, under inspiration, because I'm reading the Bible like a Christian, It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. The Abrahamic promises are fulfilled in the ultimate true faithful servant, the ultimate true faithful son, Christ. This is why I say over and over again, Israel is a son, Hosea 11.1. Matthew chapter 2 quotes Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I've called my son. It's talking about Jesus as the ultimate son. We go from shadow to substance, unless we're Zionists. Then we go from substance to shadow, and that's not very Christian. Lord, help us to think through these things. Okay, let's do the next one. The next ism on the list, and I have to say it a certain way. It's number seven, and it is quietism. It's quietism, and I have to say it quietly because it's quietism. I kid, it's called quietism. We'll do it super fast because I don't think any of you struggle with this. Um, Quietism is another form of mysticism. But I've used that before in an ism series, so I wanted to use a different word. Quietism comes from a certain sect within Roman Catholicism uh, that actually even Roman Catholicism said it wasn't good. Uh, Quietism reads the Bible like it's a devotional book. It doesn't go through any of the, 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 the work that needs to be done to bridge gaps. So when I read a devotional that's written well, I appreciate devotional books that people write. I can just open it up and it's almost immediate application. Uh, but the Bible's not written that way. We have um, language gaps, culture gaps, time gaps, geography gaps, manners and customs gaps. And you all instinctively, if you've been a Christian very long or around other Christians who are mature, you're always saying, now who wrote this and, and wh- who did they write to and what was going on at the time? And, and then eventually you say, 
what does this teach me about God that is true? What kind of promises relate to me in Christ ultimately? How does this encourage me today? But you go through the effort. Quietism, it's just instant, open it up for a word from the Lord. Okay? It's alive and well. It's alive and well in charismatic circles. Um, they would write you off as too intellectual because you're spending time to try to bridge the gaps. Um, it's alive and well based upon the fact that I know one person has sold 300, no, 30 million copies last I checked for a, a book that this person's written along these same lines trying to get you to read the Bible this way. Um, and so we like this because studying the Bible's work, um, but I think I don't need to spend any more time on, on this one. I had an example of, you know, like the the genealogy of Saul and how he's described as tall, dark, and handsome, and maybe there's some takeaways for us and a word from the Lord about... Anyway, I, we could be silly about it, but we're not going to do it. Um, mysticism isn't a good look. Uh, we'll move past it. Finally, one finalism. It's one more controversial one. In the UK, they'd say, I'm about ready to throw the cat among the pigeons. I'm about ready to create a mess of controversy, perhaps, but I don't hope, I, I don't think it'll end that way. The finalism I want to offer to you is called biblicism. Biblicism. And I mean it in a certain sense. There's a certain sense that biblicism is good, and there's a certain sense in which biblicism is an ism, and we want to stay away from it. So the first kind, is, it's a good kind. I would imagine almost every single one of you here today could be labeled by the fact that you came to Omaha Bible Church. Okay, If your parents made you come, maybe it doesn't fit you. But otherwise, if you came here and you wanted to be here, um, someone might accuse you of being a biblicist because you've come to a church that takes the Bible seriously. Uh, if you believe what's in the Bible, it's rooted in history, actual promises can be believed you would easily be labeled by Sam Harris or an atheist like him as one of those stupid biblicists. If that's what we mean by biblicism, I'll wear that as a badge of, badge of honor all day long. Okay? But that's not what I'm talking about. Biblicism is also used in a prideful kind of way um, by some who don't like historical theology, who don't like church history, uh, who kind of like to promote interpretations nobody's ever heard before. Um, they, they really don't like things like creeds and confessions. Uh, they pretend almost as if they're the first Christian. It's just them, them the Bible, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, that, that would be true in biblicism. Uh, to use a, a one-word label, they tend to interpret the Bible in ways that are idiosyncratic. Nobody's ever come up with this before, but I have. And so I'm a biblicist. Okay? So biblicism uh, would be those things and more. It sounds humble. It sounds pious. But it oftentimes leads to bad things. And it oftentimes leads um, to cultic kind of behavior. And I have some historical examples of it. I'm going to offer to you in just a second. Um, but maybe one more thing. It's commonly held by teachers who, who have a theology that lacks consistency. So let's say I'm promoting a certain teaching, a certain doctrine. And then you say, yeah, but what about these passages? And that contradicts what you're saying. 
Never mind the fact that what you were teaching over here, you've never heard before. And it seems like no one ever in the history of Orthodox Christianity has ever come up with that before. But you're promoting it. And I'm saying, well, I just follow the Bible. What about these contradictions? Well, you know, I'm a biblicist. Would kind of be, but would be a common excuse people use when they teach things that are unorthodox, I guess. And I always think of this um, when it comes to biblicism. Do any of you remember the skit that John Levitz did a long time ago called Pathological Liars Anonymous? Anybody remember that? The John Levitz thing? Some of you do, some of you don't. More of you are about ready to remember it when I do a bad imitation. Okay? Pathological Liars Anonymous. So if I'm caught in a lie, I'm saying this is biblical Christianity and you bust me on it and it actually isn't, but I'm scrambling for some kind of response and answer that keeps me sounding authoritative and smart and wise. I say, oh, well, yeah, well, um, seems contradictory, but uh, I... I'm a biblicist. That's what I am. Yeah, a biblicist. That's the ticket. (laughs) Now some more of you remember, and those of you who grew up in a Christian household, thank your parents that they didn't let you watch such things on TV. But I digress. I want you to forever remember, because it's this, I've been caught, I'm in bad company, caught in this lie, but I'm going to make it sound good, because I... I'm a biblicist. Yeah, that's the ticket. I want you to always remember my bad imitation even. And so when someone's teaching some funky doctrine, something that doesn't pass the sniff test spiritually, or however you want to say it, and they say, well, it's because I'm a biblicist. I want you to think pathological liars anonymous. It's not a good look historically. Biblicists don't like labels. Well, I'm not a Calvinist and I'm not an Arminian. I'm a Biblicist. Well, everybody's one of the first two, by the way. Um, and you either are one or the other. Um, and Biblicist is a head fake. Okay. No, I'm a Biblicist. I don't know anything about history. So I say I reject both of those. That's the ticket. I'm a Biblicist. I'll stop. Okay. It's getting long in the day. Because they don't know history. And again, labels can, can be hurtful, but if you know history, you say, you know what, these labels are used and, and they mean things and they can be helpful. They're not always helpful. How many of you believe in the Trinity? All of you who are professing Christians believe in the Trinity. That's proof to me you're not a biblicist. Because if you do a word search in that Bible search engine, it, nothing comes up when you say Trinity. Not only that, even the actual theological explanation of it when it comes to historical theology is not going to show up in a Bible word search either. If I say, and the doctrine of the Trinity is there is one true eternal God who has always been God, is God now and always will be God, and He has eternally existed and will exist forever as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I just gave you classic Trinitarianism, but if you were a really fast typer and you took down all those words I said carefully, because I'm not a biblicist, you wouldn't find it in the search engine. What you would find is the Bible teaches there's one true God who's always been God. Transtestamentally, it's there. Um, Throughout the whole Bible is what I mean. Um, And the Father's God always has been. Son is God always has been. Spirit is God always has been. 
you'd find all of those things with lots of Bible verses. But we pay attention to history and say, oh, that's called Trinitarianism. That's what that is. Um, One example would be um, of Biblicism would be with Arius in the fourth century. It's one of the biggest ones. Arius was opposed to, anybody want to move up to the front of the class? (laughs) Arius was opposed to Athanasius, or should I say Athanasius is opposed to Arius. And if you've never heard of Arius or Arianism, you've probably heard of Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay, They are Arian. They believe that Jesus is God's greatest created being. So they're not Trinitarian, and they don't believe in the deity of Christ. So that's Arianism. Athanasius opposes him. As a result, we have things like the Nicene Creed, extra-biblical document to explain the biblical teaching. Okay, That's a very non-biblicist way to do things. The reason I bring it up, though, is because Arius is the one... Arius was, I'm a biblicist. Yeah, that's what I am. Arius prided himself, and he looked self-righteous by saying, we're not going to use any labels. We're not going to use any categories, only Bible words only Bible texts. But Athanasius was smart enough to say, no, we're going to come up with a couple of theological categories, labels, extra biblical ones to find out who the heretic is. And it was actually useful. It was actually helpful. It's fascinating history. Maybe another example that could come about in all of this, um, if you think of around the time, as a result of the second so-called Great Awakening, would be another uh, example with the Stone-Campbell movement. And if you haven't ever heard of the Stone-Campbell movement, you have heard of the Churches of Christ and the Christian churches. And they're the ones who made famous this phrase, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. Which, by the way, no creed but Christ is a creed, but I digress, paying attention to facts. Um, But they, they wore that as a badge of honor. They wore it as a badge of honor because they saw all of the Christian churches as corrupt. And so we need to get rid of all creeds and confessions and ignore all history. And we're going to be biblicists. No creed but Christ. And we're going to get it right because nobody's gotten it right or nobody's getting it right now. So we're all familiar with that particular movement. It's really hard to figure out and nail them down where they are on certain aspects of theology because uh, they, they don't want to have a doctrinal statement, a confession, or a creed. One of their own historians writes most recently these words. The most basic reason for our unfamiliarity is our sense of historylessness. We tend to assume that nothing after the New Testament matters in the slightest. Which I thought was kind of interesting. Because it's after the New Testament when so many of the battles come to figure out the meaning. And so much blood, sweat, and tears have been shed by men and women and boys and girls for the truth. It's true. Jude 3 says, the faith is once and for all delivered. But what's the meaning of so many aspects of the faith? Should we be Arian or should we subscribe to the Athanasian Creed? Should we be Trinitarian or not? Should we subscribe to justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of the finished work of Christ alone, or not? So we're paying attention to history. Uh, Remember, Jesus says in John 16 that the Spirit would come after He goes, 
His teaching ministry is done. He did his work. He teaches the disciples. And then he says, the spirit is going to lead you into all the truth. Now it might mean, he might mean by that, if I'm being honest, he's going to lead you into all the truth and it'll all be written down in scripture. But plenty of Bible believers believe that's true and he will lead you, you all as believers, apostles and those who would come after them into all the truth. Which I think makes a lot of sense. We don't want to act like we're the first Christians. We want to pay attention, as one of my friends likes to say, we want to read and interpret the Bible with the church. Church here, yes. There's accountability, yes. We're not, I'm not the only one with the Holy Spirit, yes. But even the church who, who has gone before us. Maybe one other example that comes pretty close to home for us, for me at least, maybe not all of you, some of you, um, and that would be the Biblicism of Lewis Berry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. So I have roots that would extend back to there. Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer, founder of Dallas Seminary. Interestingly enough, I read the biography or the history of DTS, Dallas Seminary, not too long ago. It's fascinating. John Hanna writes it. He's a respectable church historian. He's been a faculty member there for a long time. So he's writing it as an insider, not as a, an outside critic. So... Hannah describes Chafer, uh, and he doesn't use the word biblicist, but he basically describes him as a biblicist. So Chafer, um, on purpose, Hannah says, wanted to ignore all historical theology and all church history and start over just him and his Bible. And Hannah's not a fan um, because Chafer gets some really, really strange things promoted in the name of, I'm just being a biblicist. The one I use here quite often because justification is near and dear to my heart. Should be near and dear to everybody's heart. Uh, Chafer is the one who said Jesus was raised from the dead for Gentiles only. And Jesus was not raised from the dead for Jewish believers. Well, we all know that's a huge problem because Paul says he was raised for our justification. And if you don't have resurrection, you don't have justification. Thankfully, the followers of Chafer, as far as I know, don't believe that anymore. But it's a bad look when you don't pay attention to what's been taught around you. Um, Hannah says that Chafer used to make fun of people like Presbyterians because they affirmed the Westminster Confession of Faith. And he would make fun of them because he believed that they read the Bible and interpreted the Bible in light of the confessions. But even Hannah says, the very thing Chafer accused the Presbyterians of doing, he did... But he didn't interpret the Bible in light of the historic creeds and confessions. Chafer interpreted the Bible in light of what he heard at the dispensational Bible conferences. Doesn't mean one, one's right and the other one isn't right, but it's worth thinking about. It's really good to pay attention to history. We have what's called doctrinal development paying attention to how other people were. Now, maybe you're thinking, yeah, but aren't the biblicists actually the ones who uphold sola scriptura? No. <laughs> and maybe we'll end on this. I used to think that. I used to think sola scriptura is, I don't need to have any books. I don't need to pay attention to any other people because scripture alone is sufficient. It sounds good. It sounds pious. It sounds like what biblicists like to say. Well, you know, we believe in sola scriptura, so it's only the Bible. Now, let's think about that. 
Who were the people in church history that championed the thing we call sola scriptura? It would be the Protestant reformers. And the Protestant reformers championed scripture alone. But it just goes to show you it's ignorance of history if we say they meant by that only me and the Holy Spirit in the Bible. The Protestant reformers champion sola scriptura because only the Bible is the revelation of God. Not what the Pope says. Because he claims to receive new revelation from God. And the Protestant reformers were saying, we're not getting any new revelation from God. Not like the Pope. Sola Scriptura. We have a closed canon. We're not getting new revelation. Sola Scriptura. And not only that, we, we, we reject the claims of new revelation from the, uh, from, from the Pope. We also reject the claims of new revelation from the radical Anabaptists who say things like, God told me. No, we, we affirm sola scriptura only, revelation only comes from God and we have a closed canon and we don't need any more and we can't give you any more. That's sola scriptura. But if you read any of the Protestant reformers, whether it's Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Beza, Melanchthon, Knox, on and on and on and on and on, one thing you do find is they keep quoting other people who've gone before them. They keep quoting other people who've gone before them. They go to great lengths trying to prove to people they're not starting a, I'm going to use the C word, cult by being biblicists. They're trying to show that they actually are the true lowercase c Catholics unlike the Roman Catholic Church. They're trying to show we believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit has always been with believers and we are teaching the same things they're teaching. This is the once and for all delivered to the saints' faith and we're actually a part of that and so we're going to show continuity. Final, final, final thing we're going to talk about today and I, I hope, if need be, I hope I've rustled things up a little bit. Um, let's keep talking about this if need be. But we do need to make sure that we know that there is a shameful way of interpreting the Bible and a God-approved way of interpreting the Bible. And I don't claim to have arrived. But we do know Paul writes to Timothy, and certainly Timothy would want to share it with the church. Work hard. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a diligent, faithful workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. And so let's be hard workers to diligently handle Scripture. And I think that's going to mean avoiding the isms and interpreting the Bible like Christians. I hope it helps you. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church. Thank you for your patience and kindness and generosity. Help us to keep learning. Help us to not act pridefully like we're the first Christians or that we know everything. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the fact that he interpreted the Old Testament as a model to us and help us to find ourselves wanting to be like him and the apostles after him. In Jesus' name, amen.